Our guest this episode is a guitarist, singer-songwriter, who's known as an indie pop rock musician with an art house French vibe sound, a throaty voice, and darkly poetic lyrics. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and is bilingual, as he was raised speaking both French and English at home and attended a French high school. Many of his songs he sings in French. After graduating from Georgetown University with a degree in mathematical economics, he lived in New York City for about 10 years, working as a manager for the Merce Cunningham Dance Company and traveled the world with them before he actually left to pursue a career in music. He lived on the East Coast for a while, and eventually, uh, in about 2017, he and his wife made their way out west to Sebastopol, California, where they currently live, growing their own food and enjoying the beauty of Sonoma County. This episode has plenty of music throughout, with several clips from songs from our guest albums, as well as two live performances. We are so pleased to share with you our charming poet musician and my good friend, Mark Farr. To drink lyrics. water. <laughs> yeah. yes. Mark, there's no drinking slurp. water on our podcast. No slurping allowed. Yeah. Dehydration <laughs> no is what blowing. we're about. Yeah. Okay, so we're live. We're good to go whenever. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> good. <clears throat> no laughing, Jim. Welcome to Meaningful Musical Conversations, where we have heart-to-heart talks about music and life. I'm Jill Minier. I'm Daniel Townsend. How's it all going, everyone? Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, today we have Mark Farr sitting in the building. And first of all, Mark, thank you so much. Um, you're not here to see this, guys, but he gave us five. A box set. Five box set of his <laughs> uh, music here. So grateful for that. And thank you, Daniel. To be listening to that. So obviously we'll get more into that today and about your music and what you're all about. But why don't we start with how you guys met, uh, Jill? Okay, cool. Well, uh, actually, Mark and I met over Facebook, believe it or not. Um, I was listening to a song called Sweet George that I was just blown away by, and I made a comment about it. Um, And then all of a sudden I got introduced in that moment from my college roommate Mm. who lives in New York and who Mark knew. And (laughs) next thing you knew, a year later, we were meeting in person, hanging out, um, and kind of became musical friends, so... Thank you so much, Mark, for coming yes. and chatting with us today. Thanks, Jill. I'm very flattered to be here. I've listened to many of your podcasts. and We're very grateful. It's awesome well, to geez. be in the green room, the famous <laughs> green room. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Well, I want to just kind of jump in and hear about where you grew up. and Because I know you have a really kind of an interesting story, and there's a lot that I actually don't know about you. Do you know what town I was born in? I do not. Well. Please tell us. Start there. It's a exotic little um, riverside village called Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> it was fabulous climate, fabulous. No, I was born there. My dad was uh, studying at Johns Hopkins University at the mm. time, and uh, but uh, then I moved to Washington D.C. a day, a year later. Felt like a day. <laughs> of course, I don't really remember that much <laughs> since I was only a year old. But um, yeah, so. I grew up mostly in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents were, my dad was French and my mother was of French ancestry, but half American, half French. And so we grew up in a French-speaking house and um, lived with my granny, my French granny, 
Um, so I grew up in a, in a house where English and French were spoken interchangeably. Actually, mm-hmm. funny thing, and other people I know have said this, my mother would speak to her mother in English and my grandmother would answer in French. Mm-hmm. I mean, they both understood each other, but that was the way they communicated. Wow. So I, let's say I was bathed in a um, bicultural <clears throat> and bilingual environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they sent me to a French lycée in Washington. So... Um, hmm. I uh, basically learned everything in French. I learned, you know, math and science and geometry. And I even learned German and French, which is funny because I speak German with a French accent, not with an American (laughs) accent, which is totally weird. Um, So those are my early years. I did um, spend some time um, when my dad had a sabbatical. I spent some time growing up in Paris Mm -hmm. and some time in Oxford Mm -hmm. uh, and some time in the south of France. And these are places that I've gone back to many times in my life and sometimes to live, particularly Paris. Mm. Um, what else do you want to know? <laughs> Mark, I want to know um, where you went to school. College, um, you mean? Yeah, college. So I went to Georgetown University <clears throat> um, and I studied mathematical economics, which is a natural path for an aspiring weird musician. You know, <laughs> um, and uh, I went there because I had a full scholarship because my dad was a professor there and I didn't have to pay tuition. So oh, nice. the one thing I, I never had student loans. So I'm really grateful for mm-hmm. that. Um, and that's when I got involved with radio also. Mm-hmm. So I got involved with a, at t- time, very subversive radio station called WGTB, now legendary closed down by the Catholic Church because we did uh, birth control referrals in our public service oh, announcements. Wow. And then I landed on WAMU-FM, which is the, the flagship NPR station in Washington. That's wow. at the American University. So I did a show there um, pretty much into the early 80s when I moved to New York. So um, going back to your, um, your radio <clears throat> Uh, experience in college. Mm-hmm. So it was like a college radio station and it was subversive. So what kind of music did you guys play? And tell us a little bit more mm-hmm. about So what's great about WGTB it was one of the very first freeform, truly freeform FM radio stations. It started off before as kind of a straight-laced Georgetown University Jesuit-focused um, uh, station. But eventually, you know, the 60s happened and the student body evolved and there was a great deal of ferment as there was all over America and it covered both politics and music. So this was, you know, the 60s, San Francisco sound, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones Mm. and everything else. And the great thing about that station, and I was really steeped in it, was that you had the concept of doing a radio show as an art form. So you really focused on a story. You start with one song and then you segue into another one. And sometimes the the sets are thematic, sometimes they're musically conducive, Mm -hmm. but there's always a a way in which you're expressing yourself. And I think one reason why maybe I became a singer is that I love working with a microphone. There's an intimacy there, Mm -hmm. and particularly on the radio, you know, let's say you're doing a show in the middle of the night. We knew from ratings that maybe at any moment when I would be speaking in this dark room in the middle of a campus, that there were... 30 or 40,000 people listening somewhere. Some were shut in, some were prisoners, mm. some were lonely people, some were just up and then really dug listening to music in the middle of the night and the phone would ring. And so there was that sense kind of pre-internet of community of strangers, wow. which is very much what we have now with social networks. Yes. And I think radio in a way, particularly that kind of creative radio was the first social network or one of the first. So, um, and also it was a time of, tremendous discovery. I was in college from 1977 to 1980 and there was just so much 
awesome music, you know. Uh, you know, punk and progressive rock and soul and hip hop was just starting in Washington at the time. It really mm -hmm. was one of the places where it started. So there was this wonderful, you know, vibrant, exciting community of musicians. And I was also a musician. Mm -hmm. So I started doing avant-garde performance art stuff long before anyone <laughs> called it <laughs> performance art. It's just multimedia experiments done in, you know, uh, basements of university classrooms or labs or whatever. So there was always that sense of, I mean, looking back on it now, I see what an incredibly rich and fertile period it was. People talk about the Washington scene, late 70s. But at the time, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just having fun, experimenting, feeling very free. And mm -hmm. that sense of freedom is something that is, I can't imagine creativity or happiness without freedom, without feeling like you're constrained by a format, be it a radio format or a musical label or mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I really treasure those years and... I made some wonderful friends there that I'm still friends with. And some are famous, like Bob Boylan, who runs NPR's mm. uh, All Songs Considered. And, and Tiny, the Desk. Tiny Desk. Yeah, so <coughs> Tiny Desk oh. was a band that he had called Tiny Desk Unit. That was a, a new wave <coughs> band. Oh. And uh, I had him on my show many times because I was a fan. So, um, and, and Bob showed that he actually created something new at NPR just... I want to take a little bit about him just parenthetically because mm -hmm. he's become a really important tastemaker. Mm -hmm. But Bob did it the the punk rock way. He just he just started showing up at the station asking if he could help with anything. Can I cut tape or whatever? And he, you know, they couldn't get rid of him. So they finally said, sure, come on and be an, you know, an intern. I guess they weren't even calling him interns then. And they would give him, you know, a good old reel-to-reel -reel tape deck and, you know, cutting tape, which we all did in radio. And it, he worked his way up to being the director of All Things Considered. So he's the guy that was behind the scenes calling all the cues, et cetera. <clears throat> but Bob had this idea because he, at that point he really had become a, a critical person at NPR. He had this idea of, of doing a music show mm. because NPR was growing. It was an ecosystem once again that was growing and it was a national one. And he said, you know, I'm a huge music fan. I know a lot of our listeners are huge music fans. Why don't you let me just do a show? A little bit like you're doing, Jill and Daniel. So, so there's that sense of, let's try this. Yeah. And they said, sure. I mean, they had the studios and whatever. So we started this thing called Tiny Desk Concerts. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's literally at his desk. Mm -hmm. And he's had everyone from Yo-Yo Ma to, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, they've had everybody. I think the only person he hasn't gotten yet is Paul Simon. He may even have gotten Paul Simon. So he got a chance to express his creativity. He's an artist himself. But the reason I'm saying all this is there is that, that wonderful uh, intermingling of radio and music and yes. creativity, anonymity, intimacy, unexpected encounters. Yes. And here's another reason why I love radio so much is the serendipity effect, right? So we all have our devices. We can all dial up any song at any time, right? But how does that compare to you're driving along a stretch of highway and you're scanning the dial and all of a sudden you hear one of your favorite songs. You didn't yeah. even know you yeah. wanted to hear it, right? <clears throat> and even though it may be a crappy AM radio station, you're just so happy. So the serendipity, <laughs> the discovery, that's something that's really important. And to me as a musician, I, that's why I find myself always fighting against um, expectations or you know, feeling like you have to conform in some way mm -hmm. without 
as I said before, the freedom, there's no joy, there's no creativity, and there's no serendipity. Serendipity is what we're all after. It's not, I want to hear my favorite song when I want to hear it. It's, I want to hear my favorite song when I didn't know I wanted yeah, to hear it. Yeah, there's something really mm. magical yeah. about that. That's right. It really, there really is. And, you know, it kind mm. of, um, boy, it reminds me of this blog post that you wrote, actually, um, that I just took a look at this morning. And you said something about it. I guess it's entitled, um, Where Does Music Come From? Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, it comes from the radio or from the guitar. No, <laughs> no so I, I had this, you know, sometimes, you know, you may be doing something or dreaming or whatever, and you, you suddenly have this, like, aha realization. And I had this aha realization. I don't remember what I was doing, but I remember just thinking, okay, let's just think about this numerically, all right? There's only 12 notes in the Western scale, right? So there's only so many combinations of notes, right, available, Right, but if you obviously bring in time, tempo, you know, and, and melody, etc., you instantly reach a point of infinite possibility. Mm-hmm. But still, there's still a, a limited universe of notes. So this idea I had that every song that could ever possibly exist, I just imagine it. If you imagine the blue globe of the Earth, mm-hmm. I imagine this atmosphere of musical notes all around, and every note is there. Every possible song combination, and by the way, that it goes for writing or poetry, or whatever. There's only so many words, right. but there's a lot more words than there are musical notes on the Western scale. So, um, <clears throat> I thought, well, where does it come from? It comes from those that grab bag of twelve notes. You pick up a bag and pull out twelve notes. Okay, I'm going to make a melody out of this. And I had studied dodecaphonic music, twelve tone music, and understanding how those tone rows work. And mm-hmm. you know, that's a very rigid system. But it, the purpose of that is to break our habits perhaps so that's a bit of a side issue so i thought what does every artist do every artist is just tuning their radio to that rf frequency of notes and tuning it to their favorite station so you're a songwriter you're a songwriter i'm a songwriter what are we doing when we're writing a song we're going back to our favorite chemical reactions that happen when certain notes happen together right i know and i think every artist that's ever existed has written at best three songs. Mm-hmm. And they're, 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 they're three foundational songs. That's their sound. And they're always looking to perfect and perfect and turn over the soil again and again. And I remember reading an interview with David Bowie once where he talked about, he was talking about the band Kraftwerk, this German band that I love. Mm. Because they're very Cartesian. You know, they have those little beats and they have the little boxes they created. And Bowie, who was such, in addition to a genius songwriter, was also such an incredibly perceptive critic of art and music and a great collector of art. But he said, Kraftwerk is like those, I don't know, 17th century Dutch craftsmen that would focus their entire lives on trying to build the perfect chair. Like <laughs> the perfect chair is utilitarian, and yet it's, there's always a constant refinement. So in a way... I think we songwriters, I always see us as, you know, kind of priests or priestesses trying to bring down some divine energy by tuning our radio to what pleases us. Mm. Because the idea is that, is that if it turns your lights on and you can somehow merge it with your own personal experience and go really, really deep with it, you can touch everyone's lights mm-hmm. or not everyone, but everyone who's kind of in that same spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the uh, that was the idea. Where does music come from? It comes from it's it's a gift, mm-hmm. but we it's a gift that we have to assemble yeah. ourselves. Nice. Thank you for that. Yeah. 
I want to say that, you know, you are such a perfectionist that I'm shocked that you've got five albums out because, you know, oh, you care sure. so much about your music. And, well, yeah, you know, five albums you've managed over, to get five what, albums out, years? you know? <laughs> well, that's quite a feat. Yeah. And which brings me to actually, um, after I heard Sweet George, which was your... My Sweet your, George, yeah. You know, My Sweet George, mm-hmm. your love song to um, George Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fantastic song, and we can talk about that later because I know that you know the way that it was produced. Uh, you do have some issues with that, but I just want to say how <clears throat> I hadn't met you yet, and I was at my parents' house back east, and it was in the middle of the night, and I really hadn't heard any of your other music, but I had downloaded something on Spotify, mm-hmm. and. I had the headphones on in, in the room there, and I listened to, I think, the whole the whole album of, what is it called? Man on the Sun. Man on the Sun. On the yeah. Sun. That's the, the bright orange yes, one yes, in the middle yes. there, the red one, yeah. And, oh my goodness, it was it was so deep and so soothing. Listeners, um, if you don't know Mark's music, um, I hope you do soon. His voice is, uh, to me, it sounds like a combination of David Bowie and Leonard Cohen. Mm. There's just this deep kind of resonance. We're going to hear Except some of that. Except without the genius. <laughs> please, <laughs> please. And you're such the poet. And there's an intimacy. And I, I have to say that listening in the middle of the night when I was I was kind of struggling with something and and just hearing like that, um, the, the, there's kind of like this quiet uh, voice and intimacy. And it was really wonderful and... Well, anyway, I just yeah, I wanted for to mention that compliment. That. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was it really helped me in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're feeling something kind of intense, and and music helps you to be with whatever is going on. So, and thank you know, you. Jill, if I could just make a comment about that, um, like for me, and I, I'm sure it's true for you, and pretty much every other songwriter. Uh, for me, writing a song is solving a personal problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the they say that you know what is a a pearl is made by an oyster because it has a grain of sand, an irritant. And music is like that pearl. And we all have the grain of sand. When I don't know how it is for you, but um, you feel a kind of tension. There's a kind of tension when you're feeling creative. It's kind of like being turned on, but in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. And you feel like everything is buzzing and you just feel like the, there's something happening, right? And you feel a song coming on, as they say. Or else, for me, sometimes some of my, I think, best songs have been written in periods of incredibly intense emotional yeah. pain, mm-hmm. which I couldn't share with anyone. That was my grain of sand. So there's a song on Unsafe Songs called Darkness Knows the Way that came out. I remember one night I was so lonely and so sad, and I sat outside under a, I had a, we had a covered deck, and it was raining, it was November, it was cold, but mm-hmm. I just... I, you know, and I, and it's weird. Like for me, somehow, I don't know why. I guess it's just I'm lucky, but emotions often manifest eventually in melody. Mm. And there's a melody, and you know, sometimes the melody comes first, sometimes the words, or they all jumble out of the womb at the same time. Restless heart, restless heart.
So, like, for me, writing a song is solving a problem. It's mm -hmm. not trying to reach a market or, God no. knows, sell something. Right. Um, so, it, it means a lot to me that, you know, that that song, for your own fully personal, mm -hmm. you know, reasons that have nothing to do with me and they're none of my business, mm -hmm. that it connected with you. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what any artist wants, you know, whether a musician Truth. or a choreographer, yeah. if, you know... I used to work for Merce Cunningham and he, you know, his work was very, very, very hard for a lot of audiences in America to accomplish, to uh, appreciate. Right. And Merce would always say, if only one person in the audience got what I was doing, then yeah. they know I've done my job. Yes. And sometimes mm -hmm. there isn't even that one person, to mm -hmm. be fair. And so that's why the artist journey is a, you know, it's a kind of a spiritual path. Mm -hmm. It's a lonely journey at mm -hmm. times. Yes, mm -hmm. it really can be. Mm -hmm. Boy. It's true. You wow. guys look, both look really depressed now. Yeah, no. Should we just end it now? Why did it end depressed? Like, How'd you do this? Hand me the cyanide. Truth spoken. You know? <laughs> yeah, truth spoken. There's a, a, yes. <laughs> a lot of time alone in those, in those spaces. And, and true. Yeah. Well, it is. I think songwriting is, is a... It's a well, we all know it's a solitary path. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one that is... Yeah, filled with obstacles. I right, mean, unless you're in a band, right? Yeah, that's you're different right. obstacles. Yeah, right. totally different obstacles. Yeah. <laughs> that was my verse, yeah. man. I'm trying that's to That's actually from one you, reason Mark. why I'm not good at collaborating. Mm. Like I have, and I should be because you, I would learn a lot. Yeah, you're really yeah because you're well. I mean, it's kind of early to talk about your current project, but you mm. know, since it's why not? I, what, you know, I have so, a project. <laughs> <laughs> so you've recently. We're going to kind of like skip around here in your story, but yeah. you know, you've recently gotten together some musicians. You you have um, some material that you'd really like to perform, and mm -hmm. it's you know I, I've been watching you through your process of of getting some musicians together and finally gelling, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. So, but I, and I've heard you talk about being very very specific about what you want, right? You know. With those well, musicians. And the thing is that the way I like to work with musicians is I like to find people that are creative, open-minded, and that want to co-create, but I like to have the last word. So it's like, <laughs> you know, for example, I'm not a cellist. I can't play the cello, but a cello is an instrument I like. So what I try to do is I will sing a few melodies or guide them or just jam. You know, mm -hmm. let's just try this mm -hmm. for a while. And if I hear something, I know right away, like, that, I want that. Yeah. Right. You know, and then let's build on that. So. Right. So it's it's kind of like robbing the musician that they're playing with you because it's their idea, but you want to grab it and take it. And, yeah. and but it, most of the musicians I've worked with, I think, first of all, they appreciate having their input, mm -hmm. and they appreciate having their own um, their own energy in it. But also, I think it's I think the whole co-creation thing within that structured environment. So when you're never arguing about who wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I pay musicians. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any of that murkiness. Yeah. 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 Um, and most musicians work hard <clears throat> and are, are, are over-talented and underpaid. And, and uh, when I worked with Merce, um, I was very inspired by how I worked with dancers. He didn't just sit here, the great artist, <laughs> thinking of everything. He thought of everything, but then he would try it out on the dancer's body mm -hmm. and so I think like a musician right. is like a piece of wood it has a certain grain yeah you can't make a piece of cherry be walnut right so also sometimes like I've made these records I have parts and I work with new people and I'm sure I could say play exactly these notes and sometimes to their distress I do ask them to do <laughs> that but generally I, I would say um well let's start here yeah, well, well, what feels right for you? Yeah. How would mm -hmm. you play it? Right. Yeah. Play your notes. Well, you actually did that with me. I did some um, mm -hmm. 
background right. vocals with you, that's and right. and actually come to think of it, that's how you were, you know, with me. You're like, well, a real jerk. What would I you know. do? Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't what even pay you. you? Oh, I did pay you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did one time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wasn't but, enough though. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're always a blast to hang out with, and and actually that that five hour <laughs> five hours for <laughs> one <section>. track. <laughs> And still not finished. This is typical me. <laughs> typical musician. But we, we, we had a good time. And yeah, but I, you, what you just expressed, that's exactly how I experienced it. You know, you said, hey, well, why don't you just, you know, you're listening to this thing and let's see what you would do. And, and but your I think ideas we are going to be few, better than mine because I'm stuck in it. Yeah. A few things came out. And then um, you actually recalled a line that I did that I couldn't remember to repeat. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah. What is the name of that track? Is it's that called, out that's, yet? That's where I'll be. Okay. No, it's not out because I haven't finished oh it. Oh, my God. You're going to have to come back and finish it. Yeah, I haven't even listened to it since we did this. It's so. a really cool piece. I absolutely love it. It's mesmerizing. I call so. it I call it the soundtrack to a non-existent David Lynch movie because mm. it's it's mm. got that kind of, you know, David Lynch always has that kind of sexy 6-8, yeah. you know. Yeah. Dun, 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 do, 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 do. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. Um, In fact, just when you t- that, that's when I started after you talked about David Lynch and and um, and David Shear. Um, David Shire. David Shire. And David Bowie. No, <laughs> that one I did. Then I went back and started watching that TV show that I never watched back in the what, what was Twin it? The Peaks? Nine, yeah, Twin Peaks. You never watched Twin Peaks. Well, I just after like talking to you, I went I'm back and watched now. it. If you didn't watch it, <laughs> I loved it. But back then, I was like, it was too dark. <laughs> it is very dark. So anyway, but yeah, I'm into that thing now. So. <clears throat> Um, we all change. True. Okay, wow. so going back. <laughs> where were, yeah, where were we, where uh, were we a second ago? I think we were so, sitting well, in the green room, as I recall. Yeah. It's true. Talking about <laughs> uh, the Pearl, that. talking about uh, working with musicians. And yeah. Merce Cunningham and working in the musicians, a grain of wood. And uh, <laughs> and shaping the grain of wood a little bit, but you can't turn walnut into cherry. <laughs> Get as close as you can. But, you where know, music comes from, the inspiration, but, solving a problem. So right. what? What I, I'd like to like backtrack. Right. Okay. Um, this is like one of those new TV shows where they go from the present to the past all True. the time. True. That's always confusing. So let's go back to the past. Is this like a Wayne's World? <laughs> 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 um. So what was your your uh, musical culture like that you grew up like in your house? Family. Yeah. Your family. Well, interestingly, um, <clears throat> my parents were really cool. Um, my dad had. Bunch. So my dad spent part of his childhood in Africa, and part of my family lives in Senegal. And he grew up listening to these African tall tales. And he had this, these, this. I remember there were seventy-eight RPMs, literally, um, by this guy named Hugh Tracy. And I still remember how scratchy they sounded on the radio, on the record player. But these were all stories, old African, literally tall tales, like funny or like improbable things. And then we listened to a lot of that music. So I was kind of reared on some African music. Mm. But my dad was, um, it was really interesting. So he he just loved Baroque music. That was his favorite of all time. He wasn't a big fan of jazz, I'd say, or rock. He couldn't really understand rock. But um, what he did give me is an appreciation for music as art. So he taught me. That dissonance can be beautiful, for mm-hmm. example. Like I was a kid, they were playing the Rite of Spring for me. I remember mm-hmm. being a little kid. I still remember what the album cover looked like. It was the, the Douanier Rousseau, this famous painting of a half-nude woman 
in a dark, uh, with a snake around her in, in a dark forest. This is where uh, it all started for you, Mark. I'm telling yes, you. it's the half nude woman part. That probably yeah. <laughs> no, but so that was, but that was the, the cover for the actual recording of the Rite of Spring. And I mm. remember that, you know, you know, the Rite of Spring, yes, you know, it starts and, you know, boom, 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 boom. But it starts with that, I think it's a clarinet or a soprano sax, there's that dissonance right from the top. Um, and that wasn't the only thing we listened to, but my parents loved modern art, and my mother was an artist also. Mm. Um, um, so I would say, you know, I was steeped in that, but being a kid, I listened to the radio. You know, my first, this is going to really date me, my very first memory of listening to a song on the AM radio was She Loves You by the Beatles. She Loves You. When yeah. it came out, actually my first physical memory is probably watching JFK's funeral. I remember oh, on a black and white TV. So I was three, you know, but I remember that. I, I yeah. still remember, you know, the cortege going through, you know, uh, the city of Washington, which was obviously where I lived. So, um, uh, hmm. but I, so pop was a big thing. I would say the first two albums that I bought, and this probably says a lot about me, uh, were the first three albums, I would say. The Partridge Family Greatest Hits, mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. uh, Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. and Captain Beefheart Trout Mask Replica. So that explains how messed up I am. I don't, I don't know if you know Captain Beefheart's music. No. Oh, my God. You have to. He's what like the, the, the Picasso of avant jazz rock. Oh, um, really? Captain Beefheart. <laughs> You've never heard of him? No. Oh, my God. Oh, boy, girl. you got to pay attention to this. Ah. Next time you come over. So he, he died... Uh, uh, I think five years ago, I think at ALS, <clears throat> uh, he and Frank Zappa worked together oh. and they did music that was just like from outer space, downright crazy, subversive, beautiful, wild music, really wild. Uh, I, I think of him as kind of like, you know, Picasso in his, in his most explosive period. Um, so that's the stuff that I was steeped in. So there was the avant-garde, there was the bubblegum pop. Mm-hmm. And there was the the you know classical music, and then there was the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So um, I was I always loved music. I would say my mother said that even as a baby, when she would be pushing me around the Safeway, mm-hmm. at one point the music stopped. Nobody else noticed, and I, she said I got up and said, "Hey, put the music back on." Oh, oh wow! <laughs> so I've always loved music. Like to me, music is the perfume of the years, and mm. and it's just something that you you need. You just need it yeah. if you're like me, unlike yeah. like you. Yeah. Um, so I was steeped in all kinds of music growing up. And then, you know, I did live part of my childhood in France. And so I listened to a lot of French chansons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to Edith Piaf and uh, Jacques Brel. My parents are big fans of Jacques Brel. Mm. And um, so I would say I did not have a conventional um, upbringing. I didn't go to the local high school. I went to a French school. Mm-hmm. And my buddies were either French or children of diplomats from African or countries, wherever, you know, whatever country France screwed up and colonized or Belgium, <laughs> you know, those diplomats were all in Washington, either, you know, in their embassies or at the World Bank. So there's a lot of French-speaking people in Washington, which means I grew up in a very, very, very diverse, multicultural, a multilingual environment that was grounded in French. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that inform your music? Yeah. Well, not in ways I can specifically point to except for the songs that I've written in French mm-hmm. um, like you, you could play Mise à Nu if you like you, you can add that in I sent you the recording of it yes wonderful um, 
parler de la nuit Un instant qui s'enfuit Chanson entre entendue Et la lune inaperçue Au coin d'une autre rue L'instant disparu As-tu tête, tête, tu La nuit est mise à nu I think, you know, like music is like, you know, when you grow up, like your mom knows your favorite food, like there's a favorite dish and it's like, it's like your favorite. And so I, I grew up, you know, I had a lot of favorite dishes growing up. And what I loved about, what I like about pop in particular, I never went the classical route, first of all, because it just wasn't good enough as a musician. And I'm even less good enough now as a musician, but also because I like the humbleness and simplicity of a pop song, like four, three, four minute song. You know, what is a haiku? It's, it's what, 17 syllables? You're supposed to ex tell the whole story of the world in 17 syllables. Okay. So a rock song, a pop song, you should be able to, in a very compressed format, or jazz song, um, just basically express a whole universe, a flowering of emotions and melodies and ideas and words. So I, I love that about it. Also, you know, pop, no one, well, nowadays they do, but no one thinks of it as art or high art. It's just, you know, you know when I started off like everybody else. It was to try to get girls, which didn't really work. <laughs> um, but uh, until I shifted to the guitar from the piano, that definitely helps a little bit. But I think that the um, what what's great about pop is, is it's, It's friendly music. Generally, it's friendly music by definition. It's there to stimulate all your pleasure places, mm -hmm. you know, all the fun. It's like comfort food, you mm -hmm, know. It's mm -hmm. like fast food, but really well done. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Or candy, you know. And I love that because if you go back to that stuff and analyze the songs, there, there's so much sophistication in those arrangements. Right. I mean, the gold standard is the Beach Boys, but also the Association and, I mean, lots of other bands from that era. Obviously, the Beatles, you know. Yeah, and so, you know, that song, going back to that song, Sweet George, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you'll have to take a listen to that, too. Actually, well, actually, actually My Sweet oh, did George. You? Okay, yeah. My Sweet George, yes, mm -hmm. My Sweet George. <laughs> no, because it's based, on, yeah. no, it's based on his song, My Sweet Lord, so right. that was his big hit, so that yes. was like, I and my dad's song. name was George, so. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. So I love that song, and that's very poppy, but you and I had, a, like, a conversation about the mm -hmm. production of that mm -hmm. and um, do you want to say anything about that well um, <laughs> I, what I, t I what I tend to do is when I record a song is I it's overkill I got a studio I love to arrange I like to write parts I want a string quartet here I want this guitarist and I want that there and so I will start with a simple song simple melody sweet little melody and and then I'll start to say well you know, let me bring in my band and let me bring in this awesome session player, et cetera. And then, then I'm stuck with too many tracks and then I have to take stuff out and it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. It's like deciding which of your children to throw overboard from the boat because you're just, or which one to eat because you're starving, you know? Um, oh dear. Yeah. No, that probably, <laughs> I would not eat my children if I had children. Um, but, um, and, and, but then I, I uh, asked a friend of mine, Chad Blake, who's a very, very, very famous an extraordinarily influential producer to mix the song. And as a favor to me, he did. And it was 
awesome. But it was so different from what I had thought, you know. Mm. And that's what happened when you relinquish control. I actually I sent it back. I sent him a note saying, "Is this the final mix?" Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. Because he actually had sped up the song slightly, and he has all this huge bag of tricks. You know, he did many of Tom Waits' albums, some of the very mm. best albums. And you name it, he's done every important artist. He's been behind the, the board on that. Um, in particular, Peter Gabriel's later albums, which oh, were wow. so exquisitely produced. Mm. So that's his work. Wow. But um, so he wrote back and he said, well, were you expecting something else? And I thought, oh, gosh. Um, and, and in fact, I, I was expecting something else. I was expecting it to sound like the other records he produced, but they were from other artists. And so what Chad did, and this is the thing about relinquishing control and working with a producer, this is the difficult thing for an artist that's unknown like me, is that you want to work with a producer, particularly a name brand producer, Mm -hmm. someone who has a track record, that gives you kind of instant credibility. But then also, you may not get what you think you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And... You know, when I write a song, when I finish recording, I'm so close to it, I have no perspective whatsoever if it's actually any good. So I've gone back and forth between thinking, you know, it's over, over squished, over compressed, et cetera, to really liking. And when I played it to people, for people, they they all say, wow, this is great. This is like a hit on the radio. Yeah, that's because that's what he does. He writes hits. I mean, he makes it phenomenal. I mean, I just play that over and over (laughs) and over in my car because it was just such a feel good song. Thank you. So you know what? How about if you play us a little yeah. My Sweet George now, even the, the unplugged version? I wasn't, I wasn't well, planning on it, but sure. Okay, um, cool. I'm going to plug in. Yes. We'll actually take a quick pause and we'll go grab the guitar and we'll be right back. So, yeah, speaking of the Beatles, you know, back in my generation, everybody had their Beatle. Mm-hmm. For most people, it was John. The cool people was John. For a lot of the girls, it was Paul. For the goofy ones, it was Ringo. But for me, it was George. The soulful Pisces. Mm-hmm. Which I also am, so. <clears throat> anyway, so he died, obviously, uh, in a hospital in Staten Island of cancer. I think he was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was around 2000. Anyway, it was in the early 2000s. And um, I was just, you know, so I wrote this song for him. Sweet joy. 
inside my head it rings I still can hear you sing I see what you've seen I'm feeling everything so near So clear You still feel here George My sweet George My, my, my Friends have lost their way. Do you believe in destiny? Do you still feel everything? All things must pass, sure. song My Sweet George from Mark's album of the same name, the produced version. my beetle. I feel like my voice is a little more present than it was this morning when I, I practiced a few songs. Mm. It was a little scratchy, so I did some exercises. And good. Cool. Get it out. Yeah, we're good to go. Well, thank you so much for that, Mark. That was, <laughs> oh my God, it was that fabulous. Was yeah. Well, that, you know, you no, know, that song has a couple of elements. So, you know, the, this one came together in little pieces, like that little melody. But then in the middle section, one of the weird things about me is I like to throw in some odd time signatures. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's just because I 
get bored waiting for the downbeat to come back. So mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, early. five, six, seven, one, two. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of the greatest songs actually sneak those in. Mm-hmm. And you don't even realize because everybody knows take five. But um, you know, like all you need is love. That's mm-hmm. in seven eight. Hmm. Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, that's in seven eight. I didn't know that. All you need is love. Mm-hmm. Dun, three, four, five, six, do, do, dun. It's all in seven, eight. Huh. Or a song like, except, I mean, it goes into eight, eight later. Or a song like Heart of Glass by Blondie, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Once I had love and it was a gas, soon mm-hmm. turned out to be pain in the ass. Okay. <laughs> so the chorus is da, da, da. And da, 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 da. So then listen to this, there's like a four bar break and they drop one beat. So mm-hmm. it's da, da, da. And now, like, it would feel weird. I'd be, like, looking at my watch waiting for that next downbeat. Right. So do you feel like it kind of, like, pushes the momentum of the song forward? I I think so. I I, I really like to use odd time signatures, but I like to disguise them. Mm -hmm. I like to make it seem like it's not what's going on. Because in classical music, you know, composers are always... You know, be a bar 13 and a bar 7 or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, they're... The, the time signature is an afterthought to get what they want. It's mm-hmm. just a way of notating the melody that they want. I think in pop music, there is because it's generally so vanilla and so far on the floor, um, when you can throw a little bit of spice in there, it's really fun. It's a fun little trick. It's mm-hmm. a fun little device. The song Salisbury Hill by uh, Peter Gabriel is another classic 7-8 song. Because there's that pickup, you don't mm-hmm. really think, oh, wow, this isn't 7-8. You just think that's the way the song goes. Right. So that so this song has a break in 7-8. In and a lot of my songs, at least a third of them, have odd time signatures. And they also have all kinds of different little... Um, <clears throat> the form is just pretty unusual. You have all these little extra parts that you add in. And I would love to talk about the craft of songwriting. That's because I don't know how to write a real song. I just, it's just like, <laughs> whatever. It's just my own little weird, it's quirky so cool. thing. That's why I'm not a star. So, so <laughs> that among um, many other reasons. We're coming. Right. <laughs> but you, you know, on that uh, same p- part of the blog where you're talking about um, where do songs come from, you have a quote. Uh-oh. And you, I just took a little bit. My of words this. are going to come back to bite me in the ass. Like, Here it comes. <laughs> um, so this one, you said you're talking about how um, so when where do songs come come from? It's something like you know, and then you feel some chemistry, mm-hmm. and like love. Once you've tasted it, you have to work for it. Yeah, that's right. So first, I want to hear about what that means musically. Then I want to hear about what that means uh, for you in relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. Um, I think every we all know what falling in love feels like. Temporarily, you're 10 feet tall. Everything is larger than life. You're super inflated, but in a good way. And the object of your affection is super inflated, but in a good way. And they're looking at you the same way. So there's all this fabulous juice flowing back and forth. So people that have the Don Juan complex, they just want that falling in love bit. Right. They don't want the messy stuff of mm-hmm. you supposed to take the trash out or, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, so I, I, I think that <laughs> this used to be me. <laughs> you, <laughs> were you the it. one who took the trash out no. or no, no, no. I was, oh. I was the Don one at, yes. oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, a lot of people are like that. Yeah, you know, totally. you're thinking like, I just, I just want the magic or mm-hmm. Brian Ferry famously wrote love is a drug, you know, yeah. on that, that yeah. great Roxy music song. So. You know, when a song is happening, that's the drug. And when, like when I stumble on a new song, and I will tell you guys, 
at least 80% of the time, a new song happens because I hit a wrong note playing another song. Mm-hmm. And like, especially if a song I'm kind of bored with or tired of, you know, or even one I'm still working on, but I'm always ready for an affair on the side, you know. <laughs> and um, fortunately, not oh, in dear. real life. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I'll hear like a note and like, oh, what was that? And then I think, oh, maybe this could be a bridge for this song. And then, mm-hmm. then it, it's like a burl that grows into a whole other tree and it like <laughs> right. wants to be its own tree. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, God, I've got two mistresses now. What do I do? And they're <laughs> fighting, you know. So um, I think um, you want that magic and sometimes you stumble on something and that's the direction you have to have it. And like for me, like I will keep playing this riff again and again and again and I will sing. And I, I've always workshop songs at home back in the 80s and 90s, had a cassette player and a drum machine and I would just, I, you know, I have all these, I have like a box full of maybe a hundred cassettes of songs that I've been working on. And I, and I can, going back to them now, hear myself and remember what it's like. And I've, a couple of times even I say, oh God, this is just too good, you know? Because <laughs> you have that incredible feeling of falling in love. And it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just the chemical device of some weird, strange combination of music that affects us chemically. And also whatever emotion is getting activated also chemically within us. In that sense, it's like falling in love. Mm-hmm. But like everything else, in dreams begin responsibilities, in ecstasy begins work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I actually, to be perfectly candid, I went into therapy when I was 30 because I had this constant problem. I couldn't finish a song Mm -hmm. and I didn't know why. I I, I have music pouring out of my ears all the time. Like I'm always writing, music is always writing itself in my brain, but I could never finish it. You know, because I was a Don Juan of music mm-hmm. at back then. And um, I really needed to um, understand why I couldn't finish a song. And this is kind of getting esoteric, but it's, it's what, the, what I now call the buried child syndrome. So let's Do you say, say buried child? Buried child. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a mother, you're a mother, and you have three children. And the first one dies at birth, is stillborn, or dies right after birth, and they're buried. And the other two or three grow up and they disappoint you. Hmm. They, they, didn't, they didn't become a priest or they didn't become a star or they didn't become a, you know, a lawyer, a rich lawyer, a doctor or whatever. And, or, or they became a you know, degenerate or whatever. And the mother says, I know that other one, that buried child, that's the one that would have made me happy. Right. So that's, what I, that's the perfectionism hmm. that kills all of us, not just musicians, not just me. It's that idea of... Um, if I go too far down this road, will it break my heart? Will I be disappointed? Right. We've all felt that. And many of my songs have broken my heart or disappointed me, or once they're done, disappointed me because nobody liked them or nobody listened to them or nobody bought them. And that's a se- separate issue, which we also all face. But um, I think I, I really had a hard time committing to a song, getting to the work part of the relationship. Because I am very conscious of the fact that a song that is coming is a living being outside of myself. It's not something that I actually control. So it's a dialogue, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you have to raise it. You can't just let it do what it wants, you know, go through the toy store and break everything, right? But you can't also make it dress, you can't put it in a, in a straight-laced way. You can't put them in a straight jacket or whatever it's called. You, you've got to let the, the child grow and be who he or she is. 
but you also have to guide them. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like that for a song. I speak of some I speak as someone with authority who has no children. <laughs> Let me tell you how to raise a child. And I'll tell you how to raise a song. And, and so after that initial ecstasy, I just want to relive that moment again and again and yeah. I go back to the yeah. song. And then well, the drug doesn't work quite as well anymore. So let's see what else, you know, I could do. So either abandon it, something else comes, or, you know, in my more mature years, I'll stay with it. Right. So, so um, I was going to call you George. <laughs> nice. So Mark, Good compliment. Yeah. So, Mark, what did you learn in therapy that helped you to be able to uh, finish songs? You know, I, it's not, it wasn't a direct link. You mm-hmm. know, my therapist wasn't a song therapist. Um, I, I just learned that, that my perfectionism and my fear of failure, especially oh. fear of failure. So that's but I know we... I'm the only artist that ever has had these problems, so it's right. boring that's, to that's hear that's about it. it. Well, you know, that's why you said that, because my, one of my opening remarks was uh, about actually that, like that I see that part of you and that I was surprised that you got five albums Done because well, I should have gotten 10 more, <laughs> 20 more. And I have lots more in there, but it's a, they're going through the same rigorous process of avoidance. Right, and, yeah. And so do you, so I, I kind of want to hear like a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of um, workshopping your songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that like? What does it feel like when you're, you know, doing the, quote, the work, the struggle, the part where the chemistry has worn off a little bit in your... You well, know. it's like everything else. It's doing it even when you don't feel like it. And it's going in. It's, it, this is where discipline comes in. This is where patience, this is where maturity and craft come in. And it, it's very hard because no matter how much experience you have, you still lost. You, you can always get lost. And, you know, like, is this heart still beating or not? Um, I think for me... Um, at least a good chunk of the time I get distracted by another new song because typically I will write two or three new songs at the same time and I'll go back and forth like a faithless lover to them. (laughs) How we do one thing is how we do everything kind of thing. But anyway, As go ahead. To, no. quote, to yeah. quote Tom Waits. No, right? it's not Tom Waits. It's, it's like a, yeah, no, I know, wait, I saw no, that. No, Waits said how you do anything is how, well, that's how you do everything like a, is how you do anything. Cherry, Cherry Huber says that mm. in a Zen uh, book, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's I, just said, I just said it. You heard me. I so used to you see can, it in uh, yoga class, and which Tom was in. <laughs> you probably told Tom that quote. He might have heard it from me, because yeah. I used to quote Cherry Huber all the time. I'm going to take his name off that Facebook post and put Jill Minier. I know. No, um... I think um, it's sticking with it. And then mm-hmm. and also, I think because I'm not a um, super educated composer, you know, there's a melody I want, I know that I want. And I'm, I, I, this is just, this problem is very particular to me. I get stubborn with a melody and I get stubborn with a chord progression. Mm-hmm. And if they're not working, they're not going to work tomorrow or the day after. Yeah. So I, I, and then I in, wake up in the middle of the night, this one song I'm working on right now called Lonely Diplomat. And there is this, there's this melody. I've got the melody and I've got the chords. And they're just not going together. Mm-hmm. And I, so I sit down at the piano and I try and I think maybe I need to, instead of make it in 8-8, eight, eight, make it in 7-8 or maybe 13-16 or whatever. So like, like what, is the, what is the obstacle there? Right. The thing is if you pull your hair out too much about something, you lose the thread mm-hmm. and you right. don't even want to do it anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. It's usually not worth it. Yeah, and some relationships don't last, you know. Yeah. But I think... With with me with this song, I I I'm, I've I've learned when you're in that place where it's really difficult, there are many things that are your triggers. For me, one is boredom. Mm-hmm. I yawn a lot. The last thing in the world I want to do is pick up my guitar and try to play this song again. Mm. 
and, and yet you have to. Some of my songs like Darkness Knows the Way, or even I think My Sweet George, no, not, uh, Pain on Your Obituary. Those songs took more than five years to finish. Wow. But I did come back to them and I finished them. So you have tremendous amount of discipline is one of the You have to have discipline. You have to have discipline in terms of sitting down and doing the work. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have discipline in terms of sticking with it. And I don't always have discipline. You know, Mm -hmm. I have lots of things that distract me like everyone else. That's why God created Facebook. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so that's that's how it works for me. And, And like a good marriage... When you stick it out, mm-hmm. you you know, then there's this, you're locked to that song, like My Sweet George, this one, you know, I struggled with that bridge, that that 7 8 bridge. I really did. And yet now, I mean, it's like I, I'm not going to change a single thing. It's no exactly way. the mm-hmm. way I want it. And it's become one with me. It's become yeah. flesh of my flesh. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when an artist becomes interesting because there's, a, there's an authenticity that's 100% real. And whether people like it or not, or at least that's, you know, it's the real thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Agreed. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> you got more than you bargained for. With I love this it. Movie. I love so it. So how long did it take you to finish this tune that we just heard? My Sweet George? Sweet George. Yeah. Oh, geez. I don't know, Daniel. It's, um, I think maybe, you know, the melody that, da, 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 that came really fast. I was like, oh, this, this, that was a that's falling it. in love. Like, mm-hmm. that's it. And the chorus came, um, I, I think, you know, probably took me nine months to a year because I was working on other things. Sure. Um, it, it, some songs have, I've literally written songs in 15 mm-hmm. minutes and mm-hmm. some of, those are some of the best songs because they come out fully formed. Mm-hmm. What's one be, that you've done in, that you wrote in 15 minutes? A song called um, Bricks and Mortar mm-hmm. and it's on Unsafe Songs. It's a very, very, very sad song. Um, that I wrote uh, after my marriage, my first marriage ended and I was living alone and completely clueless as to what, not clueless, but really sad about it. And um, I was living in Soho and I went to go vote at my old voting station. And as I walked by, I walked to the voting station, I walked past the building that I had lived in with my ex-wife. And right there, the melody was there. It's not a home, it's only bricks and mortar. And mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I came home after voting. I remember voting for Bill Clinton, so that's a long time ago. Uh, and I just threw it down on my four-track recorder. And I actually kept it. I added a cello later mm-hmm. um, in the studio. But it's, mm-hmm. and it's, I'm really proud of it. I don't want to play it now because I don't want to feel those feelings. But <laughs> but you can hear it. It's on unsafe songs. <clears throat> okay. And it's it's you a know, beautiful actually, little I, song. I have heard it. You have I heard think it? it? Yes, it's a, it's a beautiful song. There's a few songs, because that, that was their you know, classic ending album. That some songs come very fast because you, they're so painful, you want to get them over with. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So there's another one at the end of there called Excuses, which is very much in that same vein. Yeah. Also, very simple, just voice, electric guitar. That's mm-hmm. it. Will you play the song that you wrote for your wife? Oh, that I've written many Vivian. for Vivian. So you want to hear the song Vivian? Or I mean, I've I've written many, many like Marrow of Your Bones. That's a wedding song that I wrote that I actually performed at our wedding. Um, I wrote a Many so actually, the first song I wrote for her, I wrote before I even met her, and it's it's the little glimmer of hope on unsafe songs. It's called "Please Fall," and um, I could feel her presence. And it's and this is this is a really um, out of nowhere song. Uh, I wrote it during a long drive to Cleveland. My sister 
and her husband were driving to Cleveland. And it was around that same period after the end of my marriage. But I was already feeling, and it was winter because it was Christmas. I was already feeling those, you know, that you're from the East Coast, you know, mm-hmm. that very first time you get a slight whiff of spring. Mm-hmm. Just like even though you're it's used the to the cold, it's mm-hmm. all priced in, but there's a little whiff of something yeah. in the air. And I think I just willed Vivian into existence by writing this okay, song. Okay, so, you know, I would love to hear that one and then I can't play by, it for oh, you. Okay. And the reason I can't play it for you is it's such a complicated tuning. Okay. And, and I wrote it and it, it's, it's, it's one of those songs that was created in outer space. So mm-hmm. which CD is it on? That's on Unsafe Songs Unsafe also. Songs, okay. And I so think we'll in a way Unsafe that. Songs is maybe my best album because I, I did it in three weeks because oh I was moving to Paris mm-hmm. and I... Had to finish it, and I needed a gun to my head. And mm. there's, it's a very adventurous, extremely deep and intimate album. Um, and I have done another one since, which has not been released, that I did in France in 2003, which is called what, um, um, Nuit Blanche, which means white night. It mm. also means sleepless night. Mm. And that, that was recorded at a studio called Le Brisson, which is in the south of France. It's a very famous jazz studio where many, many ECM records were, were cool. recorded, at, tons of them. Mm. And the engineer is a genius and he's a friend and he just oh, gave me the, he gave me the yeah. sessions. You have and a lot I, of amazing things. I haven't released have it yet. <laughs> well, okay, so we will play that from the, um, we'll put the MP3 in there of that song. Uh, please fall. When you're in the woods, when the snow is deep, So now we're going to hear um, a song that Mark wrote that he played at his wedding with Vivian. She wasn't expecting it. And she wasn't expecting it. <laughs> I had it. actually, we had a string quartet there to entertain us at the wedding, and I had written out a score for them. So when it came time to give my toast, instead I picked up my guitar and I sang this song. And I mm-hmm. never even rehearsed it with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Dave did the arrangement, and it just was magic. Mm. You know, it's magic. There is, there is a recording of this. Um, but we're going to actually just have a live version that Mark's going to do. They've been together now 21 years, married 21 years. And here, the name of the song is The Marrow of Your Bones. The Marrow, yeah. Or, yeah, The Marrow. That works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you really sprung this on me, Joe. <laughs> okay. You're going to go anyway. Days and lives I did wander alone Neath broken skies and cold as stone Until the time 
When my poor heart lost his mind To find the marrow of your bone What would it be like not to ever have known Not seen that light so wild and pure and strong I don't care, I don't ever want to know I love the marrow of your bone Sailing, sailing, we're sailing out to sea Sailing, sailing on wings of mystery the violin solo. Come the hail, come the marrows, come the stones. I love you to the marrow. Don't believe the future's ever clear And I don't believe the end is near I just believe in the narrow road home That leads to the marrow of your bones Love you to the marrow of your bones. Oh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> Mark, do you remember when you came up with that uh, concept for that song? I want to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in bed holding my wife and we were about to fall asleep <laughs> nice. and we were about to fall asleep and she said, I love the marrow of your bones. Whoa. So it was her. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of the inspiration for my songs comes from her or things that she said or whatever. Um, so I guess you could say she's my muse to, to the extent that a human being can be a muse because a human being cannot really be a muse because a muse is a divine creature. But a human being can be a divine creature. And there's another song in that album uh, which you should listen to called Vivian. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lovely song. And, and in it, I say she's half human and half divine, half of water, half of wine. Mm. And then the second time that chorus comes around, you say, all human and all divine, all at once and all the time. Mm. So there's that sense of, and, and the, the thing is about falling in love is it opens your heart. So you can get to the point if you really, really keep your heart open that you can see anyone with that same eyes of divinity. Mm. And I, re- I really believe that all of us have that half human, half divine and all human, all divine. And I think that's the, the great virtue of inspiration, of, of falling in love. If you don't keep it all for yourself, if you realize, okay, my heart has been amplified by this and you don't let it close again, which means you take a risk. It's the same thing with a song, like a, a beautiful song, like it amplifies 
it, it, it deepened your instrument and, and it's permanent unless you calcify, which a lot of people do. People, mm. they, they shut down either as real people or they become super orthodox in whatever way or musically they give up, you mm-hmm. know, or they, you know, whatever. And, you know, I mean, I, my experience too is that it's, it's, it's uh, <clears throat> that shutting down happens for me when I get really angry about something, even if it's, if it's something political. You know, mm-hmm. and so I'm because your heart is closing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and that can it's not it's it's then it's just in this in this position, and it doesn't just immediately just open open back up again. Right. Yeah. You don't necessarily feel that experience of love um, just because you walk outside or whatever. That's it can right. keep you in that state unless you sure. cultivate that other. You know, so that's why I don't know. Um, it's so tricky to how do we how do we of course here we are. Um, going into another uh, thread here, but mm-hmm, how do you mm-hmm. stay engaged in the world when there's a, a bunch of stuff going on, and you, you use that those emotions to actually take action? Well, um, it's it's very tricky because emotions not like in an angry way. Sorry to just yeah. jump in there, but yeah, well, emotions inspire you. What is inspiration? It's literally in spirit. So mm-hmm. it's it's literally the spirit inside of you that's driving you to do something. I think the way to take action if you're indignant about a political issue, for example, or or an unnamed political figure, is for me, like I have friends that are supporters of that unnamed political figure. Mm-hmm. So the way I take action is I I folk, try to focus on them. What is it that they see in him mm-hmm. that they like? And mm-hmm. I focus on the heart of my friends. I focus on the goodness in them. And, you know, in the Facebook and Twitter generation, we're all just throwing arrows at each other. But I think if you if you try to keep your heart open, even in a situation which could be contentious, and you know when to withdraw, and and you just try to approach people from kind of underneath the covers. It's not like a you know I don't like the color of your skin or I don't like your political perspective. I just think that's the only way to do it. And actually, I just thought of a quote from Elie Wiesel that I just heard on Terry Gross. She interviewed him, or they replayed an interview on the 75th anniversary of the, uh, of the liberation of Auschwitz last month. And he said, words can be formed into weapons or formed into prayers. Mm-hmm. And I think that we all need to think about that, you know? Love that. It's not just our words, but you can kind of backfill that even our thoughts and our emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that we don't feel angry and pissed <clears throat> off and want to, you know, slap someone, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't really get you anywhere because your heart is closing. You're driven by emotion, but it's an emotion of protection, Mm -hmm. not a protect, not an emotion of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the key is vulnerability. You cannot be an artist without having the courage to be vulnerable, without having the courage to fuck up, pardon Mm -hmm. my French, without having the courage to be wrong and without having the courage to fail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that, Mark. And God, you know, that brings me to this other topic. Uh oh, another topic? <laughs> In my contract, really we only had four segue. topics, Jill. <laughs> You've extended my. Okay, I'm feeling proud That's of this segue. Okay, yeah. so. I'm going to eat this apple now just to piss you off. <laughs> okay. Let's get that on the mic, uh, a bite of that apple. <clears throat> okay, so, Mark, let's mm. talk about, since we're talking about vulnerability, let's talk about performing. I have no vulnerabilities. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> because you're going to be performing soon. Number one, you I done- just remembered I'm I'm <laughs> I'm late for an appointment. 
<laughs> so you've been very generous with us to perform yeah. here, you know, on, on the show. I didn't know You're... it was going to be put on the spot like this. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I, I told you guys some surprise. I'm going to call my agent as soon as I get home. <laughs> yeah. They will hear of this. <laughs> so... Um, you're going to be performing, uh, well, you'll be performing at your own house concert. Um, yes, yeah, so I do do studio concerts, but those mm-hmm. are private concerts for right. now. Um, and then you've got a, a really kind of exciting thing coming up. There's something in Sebastopol. We live in Sonoma County, mm-hmm. uh, Northern California. And because there are people from like India listening, believe it or not, and all kinds of places. So, I love India. Mm-hmm. I, I've visited okay. twice. Um, so we, um, where was I? Oh, so there's a, somebody that got a grant actually from Sonoma, uh, creative Sonoma.org, which yeah, is a fantastic awesome, organization. Awesome organization. They get grants and then, um, you know, people apply for these grants, these artist grants. So, um, somebody got a grant from creative Sonoma.org for a, uh, it's called the flatbed Music, music festival. festival. Mm. So they wanted to create a music festival. So you are going to be performing in this cool festival. The opening Tell us night. about that. Yeah. yeah. So this is. Um, I'm really grateful. The the this the woman who spearheaded this. Her name is Jan Weirich. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her last name right, but I just found out about it on pardon me on Facebook um, one day, and I and they had already booked up, and I thought. My, this is where I should be playing here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to her and I sent her a few songs and I told her a little bit. I sent her some of my some of my press from the past, and she said, uh, "I really like you to play, and I'm going to find a place for you." So she found awesome. a place for me. She said, "Perform for yourself in the studio anytime you want." No, <laughs> she said. Um, so she's having me play on the opening night Friday at the Gypsy Cafe. Very cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. So nice. it changed. It was. It was yeah. going to be Hot Monk. Mm-hmm. But she said to me, no one's going to like your music, so let's put... No, <laughs> she did not say that. But she said, your music is more intimate, so let's put it in the Gypsy Cafe. Right. Great It'll idea. Be a better we, audience We love you. that place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that place, and I love Hot Monk also. Yeah, but, of course. Mm-hmm. But the problem I have with playing, and this is... In New York, I was part of this wonderful anti-folk scene that's a really important scene in downtown New York. There are a lot of clubs... Playing, I was in that same world with people like Jeff Buckley and, and Nora Jones. They all around the same time, there were a handful of clubs, and um, people went to see each other and people went to hear music. And they just, you know, you buy a tea or a glass of wine, and you know, you, there's always a, it's a tip jar. Like nobody's making any money, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, but I've been looking for that kind of scene here in Santa Rosa and, and Sebastopol. Now I know. Our friend Josh has started the uh, the Lost Church, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking forward to playing there. Um, but in Sonoma County, I found a lot of places are venues that are more focused on having music as ambience while you buy wine and beer right. and mm-hmm. have a good time. Right. And I'm all in favor of buying wine and beer and food and having a good time. It's just that my songs do not do well in a restaurant setting. I know from experience mm. um, so, you know, it, it's just a, it's a conflict of interest. People go to a restaurant because they want to have a good time, order food and talk. Right. And if there's somebody, you know, bashing their heart out on stage, unless it's got a beat, you know, which my, my stuff has a beat, but it's just a weird beat. And maybe it would be a hit on Uranus, mm-hmm. Uranus, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
So I prefer to play in places where people come to actually listen to the music. Okay, so Gypsy is Gypsy Cafe is a restaurant. Is is it oh my gonna God, be a special? Is? <laughs> no, is yes. it going to be a special evening? I believe sometimes... I believe it is because okay. it's afternoon. It's like three thirty oh, or four, so it's sweet. specific for the music. Yeah. Oh, nice. That'll be lovely. Yeah. So um, you had a question about vulnerability. Yeah. So how do you feel performing? What is that like for you? Well. Because your songs I, are intimate? I envy people that can just pick up a guitar and be the life of a party and just entertain people. I'm not really good at entertaining people. What I like to do is to try to um, touch people through the songs or inspire them perhaps or you know, please them through the melodies mm-hmm. or, the, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it is hard because you're, you're bringing your vulnerability, but you don't bring the guy that wrote the song. You bring the guy that's performing the song, and that's very different. So the calluses are there. There's a fourth wall. It's very important to respect that. But you know, you're still human. You, if people aren't paying attention, or if, you know, people are, you know, are just ignoring you, it's really, really hard because my songs are meant to be listened to, for better or for worse. Um, so that that has sometimes been a challenge for me. Now I was got this freak Japanese tour. Uh, oh. I got invited to go perform in Japan in this town called Gifu in Japan. For one week. When? This was back in 2003, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, maybe even 2000. Um, an agent uh, of a, who, who had just started a performance space in this town and had money to spend. She was looking for a typical New York singer-songwriter and a mutual friend, my friend Charles Danziger, was a wonderful guy who was a lawyer and he was fluent in Japanese, was escorting her around and took her to wow. see me. And after the gig, she came up to me and she said, how would you like to perform in Japan? And I said, well, you know, sure, make me an (laughs) offer. No, so she, they flew me in, and Vivian, and Vivian was a knitwear designer at the time, so she gave knitting classes on TV. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I did 11 performances in one weekend. Wow. I I arrived in this town, and I was a star for one weekend. There were posters of me everywhere. It was all in Japanese. (laughs) That's crazy. It was the weirdest thing. And then I came back to New York to my total obscurity right. and my day job. <laughs> By the way, do you still have a poster? I think I have one, yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's very cool. But anyway, so so that was that was fun because you know how they say in space no one can hear you scream. Well, in Japan no one can hear you scream either back home. So, uh, and the thing with Japanese audiences, they're very attentive and they're, they're wonderful. But at least in my case, when they applaud, it's like soft, gentle rain falling. It's like they don't make yeah. any noise at all. I'm like, wait, you didn't like it, you know? <laughs> right. But but it was an, it was a wonderful experience to mm. do that. And so, I would say my best performance was um, a few years ago in New York. I played a place called Joe's Pub, which is a really, really prestigious. It's it's a little bit like Great American Music Hall. It's a little smaller, but it's mm. it's got a very high prestige factor. It's in the part of the public theater downtown, and. Um, I had just released um, the last record there, One Hand on the Night, and I had a publicist and I got some press and they booked me and I, I sold the place out, which was really wow. great. And I mean, I went all in, I had my band, I had a tabla player, I had a cellist and a percussionist and you know, bass and drums and, and it was a wonderful night. It was an absolutely wonderful night, but I couldn't sustain that because mm-hmm. right. it costs a lot to perform at that level. And you know you can achieve some elevation, but you can't always lip, lift off. Mm-hmm. So frequently for me, performing has been an exercise in disappointment or self-recrimination or feeling like it wasn't good enough 
or, you know, it's like anything else. You know, why aren't more people listening or mm-hmm. why didn't more people show up? It's the same old thing. It's a human problem. Mm-hmm. But I do know that performance, like songwriting, like anything else, is just a craft. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, it's like a, a, a gnarly rock that's in a waterfall. Eventually the water will... Yeah. We'll mm-hmm. smooth it down. And I think that's actually Stephen Stills, I think it was, who was speaking of Joni Mitchell in that way. When he first saw her play, she was very, you know, shaky and mm-hmm. and uh, and kind of gnarly. And, you know, by the end, she, there's someone who has a really unique voice and she trusted it and she just kept going kept out going. and out and out. Yeah. And now it's like as natural. I mean, not now, obviously, unfortunately, but... It gets you get to the point where it just becomes an extension of yourself. So actually, you're asking me to hear, you know, play this song that I absolutely did not expect to play. Mm-hmm. It was really good for me. It reminded me that I can still pull these songs out of my guitar yeah. when yeah. I need to, totally. and that I still own them and they still own me. Totally. So, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. But the vulnerability is there. But because you put me on the spot, I didn't have the time I usually require to freak out totally right. before That's doing why it. I kept it a That's always a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a reminder that you know once it's you start, there. once you start, there's no safety net. You just have to freaking yeah. just do the show. Yeah. And then you know, then you actually, ironically, you just let go. It's like yeah. what could possibly go wrong? You Whatever it is, I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know. And then there's another notch on your belt. So mm-hmm. I really. To, to take a long time to answer a very simple question, I really do love to perform, if I, especially if I feel like I can get myself in the right place, because it, it's a tremendous, um, uh, it's an honor. I mean, it's 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 an incredible opportunity to be there, and you're you're kind of channeling something. You know, it's kind of like a you know a minister in a church. You know, you're you're something is coming from above, mm-hmm. and you're the voice, and everyone is listening. Yeah. And so, the, and then you, you're fe- you're feeling back what they're giving. Right. So, it's a tremendous privilege to perform. Mm-hmm. And and I, I found that you know when I can get over my jitters, like even just now when I did the marrow, you know, and just surrender to the song and mm-hmm. let the song right. sing you. Yeah, you gotta let the song mm-hmm. sing you, and that's what I have to remind myself. Yeah. So you have to be a vessel for the song, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Yeah. And and I think that's where you you, you know that plus practice is how you get there. Thank you for that. You're welcome. You can pay me later. <laughs> <laughs> That's really incredible. It seems like you had no problem performing too. Like you got into the vessel quick, or you let the well. You know? I, th- I, you know, th- thank you for saying that, Daniel. I think it's I just um, in this very warm environment, the green room here. Mm-hmm. I'm out of practice because, except for a couple of in-house concerts I've done, and I haven't mm-hmm. done a real concert since I left New York, and that was almost five years ago now. Right. So, But it's a commitment to myself to get back into it because it's part of what makes me happy. It's part right. of what I think my purpose in life is, yeah. is to write music and also share it. Yeah, It's pretty fundamental. Boy, well, I'm glad that you are. And I love being um, a music friend of yours. Mm. You know? Well, likewise. <clears throat> Do you want to say something about that, the importance of like having musical friends? Because I know it's definitely true for me. That's Probably an for important, you too, Daniel, right? That's an important point, Jill and Daniel. Mm-hmm. It's really important. Um, you know, in my time, I've known lots of different kinds of performing artists, like dancers and um, actors and obviously musicians. I, the music community is so supportive, yeah. at least at my level. When you're not famous and, you know, you're not getting the big deal or whatever, everybody, it's like if somebody has a lucky break, 
Every, all their friends are happy for them. Why shouldn't you be? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you'd like to have a break too, but that doesn't take away, right. if anything, that makes you feel like, well, breaks are possible. Yeah. Totally, yeah. yeah. And so, um, the, yeah, the, I have a lot of great friends from my music years in, in New York, and I have you, Jill, and, and I have you, Daniel, mm-hmm. and others around here, and the musicians that I'm playing with now, that, that's a really important point that you brought up, that the importance of community uh, a community of musicians, mm-hmm. a community of fellow artists, fellow seekers. You know, we're all like monks. You know, <laughs> we're all like looking for that or seeking or doing our best to tune into that thing, that that wonderful, beautiful, powerful, resonant thing that we all have been filled with on special occasions. So, yeah, and, and just sharing, like you have inspired me so many times, Jill, like you, you just go out and do it. Like I'll go play in this dive or I'll play in Monterio or I'll play here or I'll play there and I you know I will find a million ways to Sunday to not do something and mm. you'll just do it. Mm. So you know you give me courage and other mm. artists, you know, there's a, there you. is a sense of um emotional support. I think that's why movie stars marry other movie stars because mm-hmm. they there there's a tribe, you know, and they're like in this rarefied world. Singer-songwriters are not a rarefied world <laughs> by any means, but there is that a sense of, you know, we understand certain issues that are related to, to trying to, you know, write music and perform it mm-hmm. and get get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we have two questions that we, uh, a couple of questions that we like to ask people. Um, one of them is uh, about your musical fantasy. We're going to ask you about like uh, what, who you might like to collaborate I knew with that, at another that time. That concert was coming. That question was coming. <laughs> but I know. But yeah, like the first one, like if it, it can just be like anywhere. We right. don't even want to make a suggestion of something because we want to just come from nowhere. A musical could fantasy. be something outrageous that you, yeah. you know. It's got to be. <laughs> I'm not really good at outrageous. Um, <laughs> or it could be plain. <laughs> my musical fantasy, I think, would just be really playing for a large appreciative audience. Mm. And, and really, um, yeah, I, I, I would like to make my living from music. Mm. And, and that's more a long-term fantasy. But um, my fantasy really is to connect with people. Uh, you know, because nobody, you know, I'm very obscure. I've had some minor, very minor successes. And one of the things that I've learned as, as I've gotten older is you to understand why you're doing it. You're not doing it to elicit any kind of preconditioned response. You're doing it because you have to do it and mm-hmm. you have to be faithful to that. But then if, if you've done all that good stuff and you're all virtuous and shit, <laughs> and then people love it, well, yeah. then that's, you know, so that's my fantasy, but it's one that I would like to um, realize. Yeah, to, to be able to support yourself um, financially by or playing music. Or at least music. partially, yeah, partially. that would be right. nice. It costs and, a lot to live out here, as you know. But Yeah, and you, mo- and you did recently move, by the way. You know, yeah. Um, what is it, two years now or...? Uh, to where we live now? Yeah. Um, yeah. Two years. Two and a half. Well, since the tubs fire. So yeah, two and a half years. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, listeners, you might be curious about what Mark does actually to make money to live out here. And, you know, so. I'm a male prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't male. That was rehearsed. <laughs> it's just I really want to give up that life of debauchery. Uh, no, worse than male prostitute. I am, I am an expert on fraud and economic crime. And I write about bribery and corruption. 
mm-hmm. and all the horrible things that corporations do and and even individuals Ponzi schemes. Mm. So cyber, who pays you to do this? What are the, well, I, I have a uh, I have clients mm-hmm. that you know large organizations essentially that specialize in helping companies to understand um, how to avoid falling into the trap of the criminal justice mm. yeah. system, primarily when it comes to things like bribery and corruption. Mm-hmm which are endemic, as we all know. Um, so I, I have I didn't set out to do this, but I mean, I started out just proofreading. And mm-hmm. after I left my job with Merce Cunningham and I had to make a living. And so I uh, started proofreading and then copy editing and then writing stuff. So um, I ended up with this accidental expertise in, in economic crime. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I work in other areas as well, but primarily they're on business or technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish someone would pay me to write about music, but the money would be like the money is with everything else in music. It yeah, would be crap. Sure. So mm-hmm. um, an, an interesting point about that actually is that I do want to mention is that every artist has to deal with a problem of living. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you need a patron. Yeah. You know, whether it's the Archduke, <laughs> whether it's Columbia Records, whether it's your wealthy daddy, everybody needs someone to pay them while they create mm-hmm. because it's extraordinarily rare to make a living from doing it. And even if you end up making a living from doing it, you don't start off making up making a living. <clears throat> so when you're young, you know, you, it's cool. Like you want to, you're happy to sleep on people's couches and scrounge and that's mm-hmm. fine, but that's not sustainable either. So, um, so what I basically realized is that I need to be my own patron. Mm-hmm. So I developed this expertise in a completely different area that's just, it's a big fat yoga stretch for my brain, you know, left brain, right brain. Both of them need to be engaged on any typical day in order for me to create the ecosystem that I need in order to do my work. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to answer to anybody, mm-hmm. either with my job, because I work for myself, mm-hmm. or with my music, because mm-hmm. I work for myself. Right. So. So I do treasure that independence, and yes, it the freedom. Go, goes back to that point of freedom exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that, of course, is when you're alone all the time, working alone, that you, it can be very solipsistic, and you can yes, y- you can uh, you can just lose your way, including mm-hmm. with music, which is why collaboration and friends, and, mm-hmm. and you know, hey, listen to this song. Is this any good? Do you have mm-hmm. a recommendation? Okay. All this stuff is vital. Yeah. Yeah, sure is. Yes. But the thing that I realize now is everything in life is material in the sense that um, any moment, even the most mundane moment, like waiting in line at the DMV or whatever, scratch beneath the surface and there's beating hearts and there's mm-hmm. tragedy and joy and there's the human experience yeah. and there's possibilities. Anything literally could happen at any time, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes life Possibly boring, possibly terrifying, but also possibly really exciting. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how you tune your radio. Totally. Yeah. And when you get to, I love that. And when you get to that radio station, you're tuned in, and maybe it's something unexpected and something unpleasant. Mm. What do you do? <laughs> well, if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's Kenny G or Celine Dion, I just turn it off. <laughs> you know, it's like Carbon some things should be, you know, outlawed by the Geneva Convention. <laughs> but like, I, there's a lot of music that I, I appreciate virtually all music, but a lot mm-hmm. of music it just is not for me. Right. I just can't can't deal with like mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I, I would look terrible <laughs> in spandex, so like the 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 Super Bowl <laughs> halftime thing that's just so not mm-hmm. me. I mean, I I mm-hmm. celebrate it, but it's sure. Music has become commodity. People musicians are expected to enact 
music videos, right. essentially with canned music. And mm-hmm. so, it's, so Peter Gabriel has this great expression. He said, talking about technology, how nowadays you know we can fix anything, can fix auto tune, you can you can fix a, a bad note or you can fix the rhythm. But he said, after a while, you can't smell the musicians. Mm. You've got to smell mm-hmm. the musicians. Yeah. So musicians I like, like Tom Waits, you know, or Beefheart or whatever, these are very smelly musicians. It's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're, totally. they're hanging out. They're all, out, they're all in and they're all out there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and yeah. That's, if, if you find someone who's really something interesting to say, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing like it. Wow. Yeah. Well, that might be a good I think place we've lost to... our audience like <laughs> an hour and a half ago. No way. No. Yeah. This has really been a pleasure, yeah. Mark. Really been a for pleasure. For me too and an honor. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, mm. Daniel. Of course. Thanks Thank for you for being such warm and wor- nurturing mm. and interesting. And- uh, interviewers and conversationalists, and thank you for oh. laughing at my crappy jokes. <laughs> we'll have to get you back on as well. Yeah, for yeah. more. Stuff, I know. You know. No problem. Yeah. Anytime. Some more music out there. Also, um, where can people find information about you? You have your own website. I do. Yes. M-A-R-C-F-A-R-R-E.com. Mm-hmm. My music is available and typically inadequately purchased on every <laughs> platform. I'm on Spotify, Pandora. I think I'm on Pandora, Apple Music, Amazon, iTunes. I have like 50 music distributors. Hmm. And you should see my royalty statements. They are <laughs> off the charts. Yeah. I believe it. <laughs> like, no, literally, you know, I mean, everyone complains about it, but like, you should see my, literally, like my Spotify, it's like 0. 0.0003 pennies, you know? Right, yeah. So, I know. You gotta laugh. Yeah. I know. You know, it's all you can maybe do, right? next time we can talk about music technology and the way that's changed platforms, how people buy music. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, so basically it's available everywhere. Thank okay. you, Daniel. Awesome. Just want to be sure. Cool. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. And um, we hope that you have some of your own enjoyable, meaningful musical conversations. Once again, thank you, Mark. And thanks, Jill. Thank you, yeah, Daniel, thanks, too. Jill. Thank for, you, Daniel. Yeah. We're so thankful in this room. I love it. (laughs) I'm feeling all a Twitter with thankfulness. Yeah. (laughs) Till next time. All right. Until next time, guys. Bye. We'll see you next time.